0: Go to the Lord in prayer. Father, now is the time where every week either Brian or I say, help. All week as I'm writing, reading your words, studying, that's been the prayer. that's always the prayer. Help. I need your help, and I thank you that you delight to help us. You are our helper. And I pray that you would be with us now, that you would help us to listen, that you would help us to learn from you, to learn from your word. I pray that you'd give clarity to my words and clarity to us as we listen. Lord, this is a topic that um, is sobering. Uh, we're, We're looking at idolatry and Lord, we all struggle to replace you with other things that are not you. I do it. I've done it this week. And I I want to repent. And we're continually repenting. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to examine our hearts afresh. And uh, I thank you, Father, so much, even as we get ready to enter the word uh, that we... We have a, a, a Savior who loves us, and that when we substitute other things for you, um, you forgive us if we turn to you, and you can only forgive us because you substituted yourself for us in the person of your Son, Jesus, taking the blame for our sin. And so we just thank you for that, and I pray that we would end by having hearts war- our hearts warmed by the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, we are going to be tackling the dramatic climax of the Exodus story, okay? So we've been working through Exodus, and I'd say this point in the book is like the point with the most tension in the book. Have you ever watched a movie that took a really surprising and even a terrifying turn near the end? Like, for example, the person that you thought was a good guy all along... Suddenly, turns out they're the villain, and then they turn against the hero of the story, and you're literally on the edge of your seat. Like, oh my word, it was his wife all along, or whatever this you know movie has. But the, these tension moments of tension, where the story takes a a huge twist, and you think, how in the world is this going to end? Sometimes I get so keyed up watching movies like that, I'm, I'm like literally shaking. Holly thinks it's kind of funny. And I'll ask, what, what happens next? What happens next? Well, Exodus doesn't leave us in the dark. We we get the whole story. But this is the, the tension, what the tension's like today. So what I'd like to do next in Exodus 32 to 34, um, I'd like to just tell the story. I'm not going to read all three of those chapters. That would take quite a while. Um, but I'm going to tell the story, and then at the end, I'll circle back through and Highlight three things from the story. First, the nature of idolatry. Second, the need for a mediator in the story. And then third, the necessity of God's presence. So we'll circle back to those at the end. But first, we'll look at the story. Before we took a break from Exodus for Palm Sunday and Resurrection Sunday, Brian preached a sermon on Exodus chapter 24 all the way up to 31, a big chunk. And basically, in that chunk of the Bible, God is giving the Israelites, giving Moses, descriptions about how to build a tent called the tabernacle. Does anyone remember, you can speak, speak it out if you know, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? That God would have a relationship with us. Yeah, that God would have a relationship with us. That He would be able to be with His people. A holy God could dwell with sinful humans only in a little model of a perfect world called the tabernacle. The tabernacle is like a, a holy space, like a little world within the sinful world, saying this is what life should be like in the presence of God. Holy, clean, Keep sin out of there. You can only enter it through sacrifice and through washing and cleansing yourselves. And so that's all these instructions come down to Israel, ultimately, so that God could dwell with them. After the instructions for the tabernacle, chapter 31 ends with instructions for Sabbath rest. Okay? Now, on the other side of these three chapters we're going to look at today on the other side chapter 35 we're going to look at chapters 32 to 34 and chapter 35 we see instructions given for sabbath again and then you get the building of the tabernacle so catch the structure here with me you get the instructions for the tabernacle and then instructions for sabbath rest then you get chapter 32 to 34 this crazy thing happens. (laughs) And then you get 35 instructions again for Sabbath rest, and then the tabernacle is actually built. So the, the idea here is that the tabernacle is going to enable God and Israel to dwell together at rest, similar to how things were back in Eden before Adam and Eve sinned. And yet, like I've been saying, in between these two Passages talking about God dwelling with his people and tabernacle and, and, and rest. In between their, those passages, Israel does something unbelievable. Something that puts everything in jeopardy. As Moses, the leader of Israel, is up on the mountain of Sinai, receiving God's covenant law and receiving all those des- descriptions about how this tabernacle is to be made, all hell, literally, breaks loose in the camp down below. Here's how it all went down. The longer Moses stayed on the mountain, the people couldn't see him up there. All they see is this great cloud and he's up there for 40 days and Israel starts getting nervous. In Exodus 32 verse 1, when the people saw Moses was so long and coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, come, make us gods. Now some translations have this as plural. Some have it, Singular. I, I believe that singular is probably the better way to go here. Come make us a god. Why? Because they didn't make a ton of calves. They made one calf. Um, so in Hebrew, it could go either way. I think singular is the best route. So um, they say, make us a god who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. The people knew Okay, that they needed a God to go before them. If they had any hope of getting into this promised land full of giants and mighty nations, they're like, we can't do this without a God. We've got to have a God. We can't see our God. And Moses, who's got like the, the walkie-talkie connection to God, we can't see him either. And We haven't seen him for 40 days. So we better make a God. We better make something that we can see to lead us into the land. So fear leads them into idolatry. They fear losing Moses and losing the presence of God, and so they make a God that they can see, a God who will go before them. So this is how they do it. Aaron, Moses' brother, um, he takes up this collection for gold. And, and everybody takes off their earrings and their necklaces that they had gotten when they left Egypt, um, and, and they, he puts it all in this big pot or something, melts it down, and he fashions this golden calf. Now, why a calf? Well... That's what the nations did. Calves and bulls uh, were commonly used by peoples of that time to to depict divine figures. Or um, gods would come riding on calves. This is just um, the image of the day. And so Israel simply copying the nations. And the tragedy of all this is that they're doing this as plans are being made for the real God to actually come and dwell with them and to go before them. And so as those plans are being made, they make a baby cow to represent his presence. What a cheap substitute for the glory of the living God. And yet, that's what all idols have in common. They're cheap substitutes, created substitutes for the living God. And we'll reflect on that more really soon. Then, standing back from his handiwork, you see in the story that Aaron declares, Behold your God, Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moo! I mean, I can't help it. It's just like so silly. And yet, they're going to worship this thing. They declare a huge feast, To the Lord the next day. And on the feast day, the people make sacrifices to this calf. And they sit down and they eat and drink. And then, after they've gotten quite filled with their drink, they stand up and they engage in revelry, as some translations say. Basically, from what we can tell, they're having this big drunken orgy around the calf. Similar to what we read about in pagan literature how idolatrous feasts would usually end up going down. It's quite sickening. And it's even more sickening when we read it in light of where we've been so far in Exodus. Remember, back to the ten words of life that God speaks to Israel back in chapter 20? There, Yahweh, the one true God, starts off his words of life with... I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before my face. You shall not make for yourself an image or an idol, a likeness of anything else in all creation. And it goes down through the list. Nothing. That's the commandment one and commandment two. And it starts off with God's identity. I'm the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And here... All the people are dancing before an idol and Aaron is saying, Behold your God who brought you out of Egypt. This is an utter rejection of Yahweh. The the author of Psalm 106 describes it this way years later. He writes, They made a calf in Horeb. Horeb is like Mount Sinai. They made a calf and they worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God For the image of an ox that eats grass. Paul talks about this in Romans 1. He draws his language from Psalm 106, reflecting on the nature of Israel's sin. Paul says, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like man and beasts and reptiles. This is the heart of sin. It's an exchange of gods. They forgot God, the psalmist goes on, their savior, who had done great things in Egypt. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. That's coming in our story. He said he would destroy them had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. That's what we see next. Israel has rejected the Lord their God by making, um, just as he's making plans to dwell with them, right? Israel is like a bride who commits adultery on her wedding day in full view of her future husband. And so, as God's looking down at his people committing spiritual idolatry or adultery completely out of control at the base of the mountain, his anger burns against their evil. In verse 7, God says to Moses that the people have become corrupt. If you've got... Your Bible open, look at that verse. Verse 7 The people have become corrupt. That word there for corruption is exact, the exact word that God spoke beforehand in Genesis chapter 6, verse 12, when he viewed all of humanity in the days of Noah. And he said, They've become corrupt, they've corrupted their way on the earth. And he sent the flood in those days. To wipe out all evil. So it shouldn't be surprising, in light of that, what the Lord says next. As in the days of Noah, God will wipe out Israel, and he will start over with one man. Israel has become like the stiff-necked calf that they're worshiping. Unwieldy, out of control, rebellious. They've become like what they have made. And God tells Moses to stand aside so his judgment can fall upon them. But as Psalm 106 said, Moses stood in the breach before God to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Now this type of scene happens often in the Bible. God threatens judgment but then relents or seems to change his plans when something about the situation changes. For example, God promises to destroy the whole city of Nineveh in the book of Jonah, but then Nineveh repents in sackcloth and ashes, and the Lord changes his revealed plan. That does not mean that God doesn't know the end from the beginning. That doesn't mean that God doesn't know the future actions of free agents There's dozens of places all over the Bible that we could go to see that God knows the future. That God doesn't just make his plans willy-nilly. And yet we see in moments like this, in Exodus 32, we see that God reveals his plans to humans, like Moses, in stages. Ultimately, God's plan all along is for Moses to do what Moses is about to do. That's God's plan. God's plan is to have Moses stand in the breach. To show Israel you need a mediator. You need a go-between. Go and in the long run, God's plan is for that all to point to the Lord Jesus, as we'll get to later, who will stand in the breach for us. This is all part of the plan. But Moses doesn't know this. He just knows corrupt earth, flood. Corrupt Israelites, uh-oh. God is angry at his people's evil. And so Moses pleads with the Lord. Now Moses' plea is very interesting. He doesn't say, come on God, really? It's not that bad. They're just having a party. It's just a little bit of fun. I mean, things get boring in the desert. Boys will be boys. That's not the angle that Moses takes. He's not saying, give him a break, cut him some slack, just forgive him. No. Notice what Moses does in verse 12. He makes the whole issue about God's honor. In verse 12, he says, what will the Egyptians say if you just wipe everybody out? In other words, all along throughout the story, okay, God has been delivering his people to make a point to the nations that he alone is God, that he's the mightiest of all gods, that the nations may know that I am the Lord. He says this all, all throughout the Exodus story. And we've pointed that out as we've gone through the passages. The nations of Canaan are trembling because they've seen what the Lord does for his people. And now, you're just going to wipe them all out? What are the nations going to say? It was because he just wanted to destroy them that he brought them out of Egypt. He couldn't even save his own people. He just went off the handle and wiped them all out. So Moses doesn't want the nations to get the wrong idea about who God is. Your character is at stake. And then... In verse 13, he reminds God of his promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to make their children into a great nation. God, are you really going to go back on your promises? What would that say about your character? So again, Moses' plea is grounded in God's fame, the fame of God's name, and God's trustworthiness. And so, in response to Moses' plea... The Lord relents. He will not bring disaster upon the people. But That does not mean that the guilty will go unpunished. And we do see that later. All is not well. Moses descends the mountain and sees for himself, with his own eyes now, the horrific deeds going on in the camp below. And so as Moses sees it, he smashes these covenant tablets in his that were in his hands, symboling the fact that the, the people had utterly broken the covenant. It would be like, you know, there's two tablets, right? One copy for God, one copy for Israel. Most scholars think that's probably what's going on. Just like in any covenant, you get a copy. In marriage, I've got a ring, Holly's got a ring. Okay, and it'd be like, A marriage partner discovering unfaithfulness and breaking the ring. The covenant's been broken, so I'm going to break the ring. Moses comes down, discovers unfaithfulness with his own eyes. The covenant's broken. Smashes the tablets. Then his zeal for the Lord kicks in and he smashes the calf. And he grinds it to dust. And he puts it in the people's drinking water. You like idols? Drink them. And then... Because the people are still running around wildly out of control, Moses stands at the gate of the camp and he cries out, Who's on the Lord's side? And the Levites, those from Moses' own tribe, run to him. And Moses instructs them to run throughout the camp, striking down the revelers who are out of control with the sword, lest the people become a complete laughingstock to the nations. Ha! God's holy nation? Looks like a drunken party to me. And so the Levites go throughout the camp, striking down those who are out of control. And they kill 3,000 men. And finally, it seems like the sight of blood sobers things up quite a bit and things settle down. The next day, Moses says these words in Exodus 32, verses 30 to 32. You, Israel, you have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Once again, we see Moses taking up the mantle of mediator, representing the people before God and representing God to the people. He doesn't minimize their sin. Again, he calls it what it is. You have done a great sin. Perhaps I can make atonement in other words, perhaps I can offer a sacrifice that will satisfy the demands of justice that you ought to pay for your evil. And so Moses goes back to the Lord and he said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made for themselves God, a God of gold. But now, please forgive their sin. But if not, verse 32, listen to this. This is amazing. If not, blot me out of the book you have written. Basically, Moses is saying, if there's no other way for the people to be forgiven, then kill me in their place. I'll take the hell that they deserve. Blot my name out of your book of life. Moses offers himself as a sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people, but the Lord turns him down. No it is those who sinned who will be blotted out of the book ultimately sin their sin will be punished even though the lord is not going to wipe out the whole nation and start again with moses those who sinned will die moses you aren't going to be killed for the sin of the people Now, there's two more pieces of the story that I need to highlight. In chapter 33, God tells Moses that he will indeed bring Israel out out of the desert and into the promised land. And he says he will drive their enemies out of the land, and he'll make sure they've got everything that they need to live in the land. But because of their ongoing propensity to sin, God says he's going to send his angel to lead them to the land. He himself, he's not going to go. He's not going to go with them. Lest, once again, this happens. The people sin and the Lord destroys them for their evil along the way. Verse 33, or Chapter 33, verse 4. The people hear this word as a disastrous word. An evil. It's, it's unbelievable to them. It's a disaster that God would not go with them. And they mourn. They take off all their jewelry and they weep. As the Lord determines what he will do. Is the tabernacle not going to be built after all? The tabernacle is not going to be necessary if the people don't have the Lord dwelling with them. So that's the tension here. At the middle of this story between the instructions given for the tabernacle, and the tabernacle being built at the end of the book, the tension is, God says, my presence is not going to go with you. And so once again, Moses, the mediator, steps up. And he goes and he pleads with the Lord, no, you must go with us. He refuses to have the promised land without the presence of God. Better a wilderness with God than a paradise without him. The long story short, though, it's in God in his amazing mercy, once again, he listens to the mediator. He will be with his people. And so he summons Moses back up on the mountain again to receive the law a second time. New stone tablets are cut, and God reestablishes the covenant that was broken He reestablishes it with Moses and with all Israel. God's like a husband who gives his cheating bride another chance. And so in the very next chapter, chapter 35, we see that the tabernacle is indeed built. And God's presence descends on it in blazing glory as he himself comes to rest in the middle of his people. That's next week's sermon. And now that we've made it all the way through the story... I'm going to circle back through and we're going to see three things. The nature of idolatry, the necessity of a mediator, the need for a mediator, and the necessity of God's presence. We're going to spend our most time on the first one and then quickly hit the second two. So first, the nature of idolatry. In our story today, Israel got nervous waiting for a God that they couldn't see. And so they decided to fashion for themselves an image of a God that they could see, a golden calf, an idol that they could tote around with them into the promised land and, and it could be with them always and, and keep them safe. Their fear of entering the land without a visible God, it led them to create a God of their own liking, an image of the kind of God that they wanted to serve. They wanted a God that they could see and touch and control, just like the image of the calf that they made to represent him. This is how idolatry starts. We lose sight of the real God, and so we turn to other saviors. And yet, the one true God, the God who had brought Israel out of Egypt, the God who promised to bring them into the land, he had absolutely forbidden any making of an image of him, ever. Why? Because God already has an image of himself. It's people. Humans are made in God's image, and they're given the task of reflecting God's character and representing his rule on the earth. And so here's the problem with making images of God. When we make an image of God, we're essentially claiming to be God. God made us in his image. We're not supposed to return the favor. When we make images of him, we're trying to be like him. We're trying to call the shots. We're fashioning an image of what we think God should be like instead of falling on our faces before the God who is. That's why idolatry is so deadly. And idolatry is actually at the core of what sin is. It all started in the garden with the promise, you can be like God. Knowing good from evil. Getting the call, the shots. You want to be like God? That's the heart of idolatry. Wanting to be like God and wanting to determine what is right and wrong, what we can worship. We might not fashion idols of gold with our hands, but our hearts fashion idols out of creation all the time. And we've got to understand this to understand sin. At its core, sin is idolatry. It's far, sin is far more than just breaking God's rules. It's not less than that, but think about it. As a parent, when your child, or when a child, you see a child breaking his parents' or her parents' commands, in that moment, that kid thinks their mom, they're dad. They're trying to call the shots. Life would be better if they were in charge. That's how I thought when I was a kid. Dad and mom, they don't know. I know better in this moment. I know what's best for me. And in sin, we are like little kids. We are acting like God. We literally enthrone ourselves and our own desires and anything else in creation that suits those desires. And we dethrone God. God idolatry dethrones God and enthrones something in creation we put ourselves and our desires and created things that meet those desires in the position of God in our lives where only God deserves to be and so here's how idolatry works again instead of worshiping the one true God and living for him and his kingdom and seeking his will for my life I start to see myself As the center of my world. And I put my own desires on the throne. My comfort starts to become supreme. My felt needs start to become absolutely central. Who I think I am, I am. Regardless of what anyone else or God himself thinks. God says I'm a sinner, but I don't feel that bad. Another word for this is pride. Pride, selfishness, idolatry, It's all the same, and it's at the heart of sin. Israel felt that they needed a God who they could tote around and manipulate by sacrifices to keep them safe from their enemies. And so they made a calf, and they danced for it. And in the same way, we feel like we need comfort, per se, or security, rest. I want to be happy. I want meaning in my life. And though we probably don't make sacrifices of animals to a calf to bring us those things, we start to make sacrifices to things in creation and not our creator. We replace God with the stuff he's made. For example, let's say I'm feeling bored and I desire some more excitement in my day. I'll look into creation and I'll pick something that I think will make me happy. In that moment, and I'll start making sacrifices to it. I'll sacrifice my money. I'll sacrifice my time, my brain power to whatever it is you name it movies, TV shows, sports, hunting for me. In that moment, hunting or whatever it is becomes my savior from the hell of boredom or discomfort or whatever's bugging me. And now often the things that we turn to, they're not bad in and of themselves. But if they start to take the place of God in our lives, that's when they become idolatrous. Idols. Idolatry is at the heart of sin. So if you've ever done something wrong in your life, which you all have, I promise, according to the Bible, idolatry was behind it. You've put your will over God's will. You've put yourself as a created being and whatever in creation you desire in the place of God. And that's idolatry. Idolatry is so subtle. But we need to be able to recognize it. It happens, again, when anything else in creation, even good things, especially good things, innocent things. What's wrong with that? When they start to take the place of God in our lives and the place of his will and his purpose. For example, food. A wonderful gift from God but it can function like a powerful idol promising salvation from boredom and depression and anxiety and stress the Bible calls that form of idolatry gluttony food ceases to be a wonderful gift from God that we give thanks for and 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 a means of keeping our bodies healthy and food becomes a false savior alcohol that can become an idol too A gift from God, but it's a powerful false savior that promises an escape from reality and guilt and responsibility and pain. Video games. They can take on idolatrous dimensions in our lives. In and of themselves, they can be a fun game to play with friends. In college, I went through a kick where I was playing some video games in my freshman year. And I made sacrifices to those games. I sacrificed my GPA. I sacrificed my sleep. I didn't sacrifice money because I took them from my friends. But they were their games. But my point is we make sacrifices all the time. Big sacrifices. Or take family. An amazing gift from God. But fear of family can start to control us and replace fear of God in our lives. Love of family can get in the way of love of God. When family demands, we choose between the two. We could go on and on. TV, movies, YouTube. Sports, hunting, work, hobbies, all mostly neutral things. Gifts from God that can be enjoyed. And yet when these things get in the way of listening to God's word, of praying to God, of serving God and his purposes in our lives, these things become idols for us. Whatever created thing is getting in the way of our worship of the Lord and of living totally for him, that's become an idol. No matter what we say we worship with our lips. God is to be like the sun of our solar system. And all the planets of our lives are to orbit around him. And if anything else starts to creep into the center, it becomes an idol. How do you know? How do I know when something has become an idol for me? One simple way is to look at our emotions. What makes you angry? Like really angry? Often, we get angry when our idols are being threatened. Okay? If we worship a particular image of ourselves as smart, successful, hardworking, whatever, we will get angry when that image is threatened. When you insinuate that I'm lazy, oh, I get angry. Why? Because you're not worshiping the image of myself that I bow to in my heart. The image of hard-working Joel or whatever. That's just one example among many. But dig up your anger and you will find idols clinging to the roots every time. And if you want, I'm talking about sinful anger. There is right things to get angry about, like evil. We should get angry about our own evil and our own idolatry. So next time you're angry, ask, what is being threatened right now? What do I feel like my anger needs to defend? When we're afraid, what do we turn to? How about when you're anxious, when you're discouraged, when you're feeling depressed? When you are feeling those ways, oftentimes, no matter how innocent of a thing we reach for, in that moment, we may be treating that like a functional savior, Another way to look for idolatry is to follow our money. What do we spend money most freely and even sometimes foolishly on? <laughs> Whatever we sacrifice our money to most freely might be for us an idol. Now, this discussion is a, a dangerous discussion to have, okay? Because we can look at our life and be like, well, can I even enjoy creation anymore? If anything could be an idol, Like, how do I go about This and and, and this discussion really is such a. We could preach a whole sermon or a series of sermons on how to handle idolatry in our hearts. But I'll end by saying two things. First, okay, idols, some idols, simply need to be smashed. Okay? Like heroin, for example, it's a horrible savior. It baits its barbed hooks with promises of heaven like pleasure that nothing on earth can compare to. I've talked to folks on those who've had those highs, right? Okay? Our dear brother Michael, he's not here this morning, right? He was spent time addicted to heroin three years ago. God saved him by showing him heroin's a terrible savior. Jesus is better. Okay, but it promises pleasure, real pleasure. But it always brings death if you turn to it fully. This is the Christian understanding of addiction. Ultimately, addiction is a worship problem. It's a cycle of ever more demanding sacrifices made to a savior who doesn't save, but actually enslaves us. But many more of our idols aren't bad things. They're good things that have just crept into that God position in our life, and they simply need to be put back in their rightful place by repentance And by renewed commitment to the one true God, we worship our way into idolatry and we worship our way out. How do we worship our way out? By turning our eyes to the Lord and by giving thanks for creation. Something becomes an idol to you often when you stop giving God thanks for it. And you feel like you deserve it. Like you have to have it. Like it's yours. And if it gets taken away, you get angry. Okay? We could go on and on about how, how to deal with idolatry in our hearts. But gratitude is one of the greatest weapons against making created things into idols. Cultivate a heart of gratitude towards creation. Using the things of earth as springboards to worship the one true God. Thank you, God, for food. I don't worship food. I love food because it's a gift from God. Ultimately, God is the giver of all good things. And he calls us to worship him through creation, but not in worship creation instead of him. Jesus is the... So, I'll back up. This one, this week, I've been thinking. What are what are some of my idols? All right. Tonight, Holly and I, I was thinking about it this morning. We need to have a talk about things in my life that maybe have crept into that place. And we, you know, my encouragement to you is to go home and be thinking. What are things that may have taken the place of God in my life? Pray about it. What's interrupting your prayer life? What gets in the way of you listening to God's word? The Christian life, our lives, is a constant battle to repent of sin wherever it's found and to put our faith totally in Jesus and in his word. He alone is a savior worth sacrificing everything to because he sacrificed his life for us. And unlike our idols, Jesus is the only savior who if you commit yourself totally to him, he won't destroy you. Or those around you. He'll actually set you free. Free to love. That leads to the second point. And again, these next two points are really quick. The need for a mediator. Because we've replaced God with other things in our lives at times. And because we've put ourselves and our will and our desires before God and before his purposes. Just like Israel. We deserve punishment. We deserve punishment for breaking God's word. And rejecting him for other things that he's made, for saying, no, we like creation better than you. Now, in the story of the golden calf, God was ready to destroy his people for their evil, and he would have been just in doing so. However, Moses stood between the Lord and his sinful people, and he pleaded for mercy. Remember what Moses said to the Israelites the day after their evil deed. He told them, your sin's great. And then he said, I'll go before the Lord and try to make atonement for you. His offer, kill me in, the, in their place, Lord. Take my life so they can live. And God refused the offer. Moses was not a spotless sacrifice. Only God himself could provide a spotless human to take the place of a rebellious people, to be blotted out for their sake. And so, at just the right time, God himself sent Israel another mediator, another go-between, to stand in the breach, in the great gap between God and his evil people, and to make atonement for them. 1 John 2, 1 to 2. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Propitiation. That's a word that means a wrath-absorbing sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the just and holy punishment of God against our sins, He was the sacrifice that Moses could not be. And thus Jesus is the perfect go-between, the perfect mediator between God and man. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And because of the cross and because of the atonement Jesus offered there for us, Jesus has made it possible For God to dwell with us and to bring us rest for our souls, both now and for all eternity. This presence of God, that's what Moses, Israel's first mediator, he pled for in our passage today. Don't leave us, we want you with us. And that leads to the third point, the necessity of God's presence. Remember what Israel did when God said he wouldn't give he, when God said, I'll give you all the perks of the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you. What did Israel do? They mourned. That's a really important response to look at. They realized in that moment that all the best things of God's created world without the creator would be a disaster. It would not be eaten restored if God was not there. Do you know how many people have everything that this world has to offer and yet they're as empty and as miserable as hell? Millions of people find themselves here and yet they keep piling up stuff to try to fill the void. They hop from idol to idol and they may even take take up Gods from different religions or different spiritualities. They might try to be good and give their money away and do good things for the world so that they can feel better about themselves and prop up this image of themselves as benevolent, this image that they bow down to in their hearts, but they know deep down they're not worthy of worship. And so they're miserable. Only God's presence can fill the void. Only God's presence will satisfy us. Life apart from the presence of the living God will only prove empty at the end of the day. No idol can replace him in life, and ultimately no idol can deliver us from death. As Augustine, one of the fathers of the church, said 1,600 years ago, you have made us, O God, for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Friends, the promised land of rest would not be rest if God was not there. In the same way, heaven, with all the blessings of the new creation that's coming, without God would be a disaster. Land, promised land, is not actually at the core of God's promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses and Israel. Instead, it's life with God in the land. The tabernacle that we'll learn about next week, that would make God's presence possible. But now, you and I, we don't have a tabernacle where we go to meet God. Not a physical tabernacle. We don't need one. As we conclude, I want you to know this. Our tabernacle that we have has been replaced. The the old tabernacle that Israel had has been replaced. It's been replaced by Jesus Jesus is the mediator between God and man. He is God made flesh. He is God's presence in our midst. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, we read that God's Word, the Word that created the world, became flesh. And literally, the Word is related to the Word for tent. He came and He pitched His tent among us. Your translation might say, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Great translation. Literally, it's tented, tabernacled. The Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we beheld His glory. If you wanted to find the glory of God in the Old Testament, where'd you go? The tabernacle. That's where the glory of God would descend at the end of the book of Exodus. Where do we go to find the glory of God in the New Testament? We go to our great mediator, Jesus Christ. The word made flesh, tenting among us. He is where we go to meet God. He is the glory of the one and only God, full of grace and truth. Jesus, God's word, himself God, full of the very grace and truth of God himself. He has dwelt among us and he sent his spirit now to dwell in the midst of all who trust him. And Jesus is the one. He reveals to us God's glory and God's character. And he shows us how God can be merciful and forgiving to sinners. And yet still be a just judge who punishes sinners. The answer is that Jesus was judged in the place of sinners on the cross. God's love is revealed in the death of Jesus for sinners. And God's justice is revealed as well in the death of Jesus for sinners. God won't just sweep sin under the rug, but he does sweep it under the cross. And so, my exhortation to you as you go into this week is to take your idols, the things that you struggle to put before God in your life, and to turn your eyes towards God and ask for forgiveness and trust the mediator who died in your place, Jesus, the Word made flesh. John. I'll close with the words of John Stott. John Stott was a is, is a is a theologian from England. He said this: the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, man putting himself in the place that only God deserves to be. The essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man, putting himself in the place where we deserved to be, the cross. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for substituting yourself for us in the person of your son, for saving us from our sin and for providing for us a way to be with you and to enjoy your presence for all eternity. I pray that you would be with us now as we partake from your bread and the cup And as we sing, in Jesus' name, amen.